We're going to look back in 20 years to the pandemic of 2020, and we'll find 25, 30, 50 world-class, world-changing companies that were created. There are, there's people out there right now that have a vision for how things will be better on the other side of this, how we, you know, a new, a new company, a, a new charity, a new just way of, of doing things, and they're going to crush it, right? And the key is those people just going for it. I don't want to share someone else's thoughts. I want to create my own original thoughts. I want to create my own original solutions. I want to look at situations and come up with my own phrasing, my own words, and do it my way. This is the John Taffer Podcast. Shut it down. This is the John Taffer Podcast. That voice is incredible. Uh, 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 and PJ King, when he does that voice, he can only do a couple of shows in a day, Corey, because it destroys his voice. I chatted, <laughs> rips his voice apart. But uh, thank you for doing that for me, buddy. Welcome to my podcast on a sort of a, you know, it's been a rough few months. There's no question about it. Certainly, some of the worst months of my life that I can think of. You know, the other moments that I think of that was so terrible, and I'm older than many of you. Is I remember when I was very, very young, and, and Kennedy was assassinated. I remember the attitude of society then. You know, we had a terrible incident, and we are all, black, white, old, young, we're all appalled. We all feel the same way universally about this. This is appalling. This must stop. We must get this under control. We all agree on this. And what frustrates me when I see the divisiveness, the, the, the violent demonstrations, the looting, when I see the hatred on the streets right now, Everybody is hating on the street about something that we all universally agree with. And that's what frustrates me so much about the moment that we're in, is that I truly believe we all agree on something here. Now, why can't we work together and solve this? Look, you know, I've, I've spoken to civil rights attorneys in the past week and, and many friends who have said, listen, of course, the vast majority of our police officers vast, vast majority are good guys, good public servants trying to do right. And there's a few bad apples and those bad apples ruin it for everybody just like a bad doctor ruins it for all the good ones and just like a bad athlete ruins it for everybody else on his team and every freaking industry has them and we have to understand that there are veterinarians that'll rip you off there's lawyers that'll rip you off every industry and every walk of society has the jerks and what we can't have happen in our society is one jerk ruin it for all the good guys. So we've got to get our arms around this as a society. If we agree on this and we're all saying the same things and when I look online, we pretty much are, this should be a time of unification. And I'm hoping that when we come out of this, that we all realize at the end of this that there is a unifying element to this and that is our appall at the death of Mr. Floyd, our appall at what happened and how universal that appall, hatred, and disgust is. Let's grab this unifying message and let's start to work together to change it. This could be an opportunity, dare I say. So please, let's take a deep breath and let's think this through. You know, for this week's podcast, I was going to take in some of your calls and I was going to get into discussions with each of you and then I got to reach out for a good friend of mine, Mark Cuban. And Mark said, gee, John, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're overdue to do the podcast. Um, my team reached out to his team, and I got Mark Cuban to come here this week and to talk to us for a little while. I thought a positive discussion could be helpful at this moment in time, a discussion about opportunity, not hate. 
a discussion about going forward, not stepping backwards. A discussion about how we reset America and move forward out of this, not just sitting and arguing about where we are at the moment. And I thought to myself, who do I know who has a great positive energy, great entrepreneurial spirit, is socially responsible, really cares about the people around him, has been an example during the pandemic, has been an example during hurricanes and natural disasters. Who do I know who could be a great example at a time like this? So I found him. When I come back, I'll be with Mark Cuban. Talk to you then. Don't shut down this podcast. John Taffer will be right back. Well, this is exciting for me. The first time I met Mark, now we had communicated before, but the first time you and I met was in Puerto Rico. Yes, sir. When you came down and helped me do a bar rescue operation in Puerto Rico. And, and it was and, amazing. What you did for the families down there in that bar was incredible I, and the community. So I was, I was truly proud to be part of it. Oh, uh, no, it, it was honored to have you, Mark. You know, in these times and, and you know, you become such a great example for entrepreneurs, uh, uh, around the country. It's fun to talk about your beginnings because I was reading your bio, getting ready for this. And there's not only some funny stories in your beginning, <laughs> but you know, it, it's, it really speaks to, to the core entrepreneur in you. And, you know, we'll finish up talking about today, you know, and, and, and of course the challenges that we have today, but you grew up in Pittsburgh Yep. and, and uh, uh, your dad was in an upholstery shop. So, so you were sort of in a bluish gray collarish type of family. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Were you a good student? Um, I had my moments both ways. Um, like through grade school, yes. Middle school, eighth grade, not so much. Ninth grade, not so much. And then um, my dad really got on me and said, okay, it's time to get your act together. You know, my parents never went to college and so they really wanted me to go. And so <laughs> I'll never forget. I started, I said, okay, I'm going to get organized. My grades are, I'm going to get my grades up. And I would carry around this little briefcase with folders in it so I would be organized. And that, that like propelled me. Wow. So your attitude changed just in the way you yeah. went about the entire thing. It wasn't yeah, just I knew a I had change. a choice. It wasn't just a change in discipline. It was a change in attitude. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just had to get my act together. I mean, I knew, you know, my, my parents, you know, really not just what they wanted for me, what I wanted for myself. And, and they didn't want me to follow the same path they had taken. And so it wasn't they put pressure on me. I put pressure on myself to get my act together. Yeah, you know, I think I, I grew up different than you. I grew up in sort of an affluent environment in Long Island. And, but, you know, my parents pushed me for greatness and pushed me and pushed me. And it's funny, when we were younger, when I was younger, I rebelled against that pushing. And same thing, when I suddenly got into my teens, I embraced it a little more. And, yeah, I mean, I went up and down, too. I had my moments. Um, I got suspended for one day from high school for wearing a shirt that said bullshit. Um, my mom, I wore it, I put it on and my mom went, you're going to get suspended and you're going to have to live with it. I'm like, yeah, I want to be a rebel. Right. I had the long hair and everything. And she was right. I got suspended, but it was only one day. So Mark Cuban was not a shy young man. You're saying, um, I, I, with my friends, I certainly wasn't shy. Um, and I wasn't quiet, but I wasn't really you know, I, I had a small circle of friends, I guess is the best way to put it. It wasn't like I was best friends with everybody. And, you know, when, when things started to go well for me, you know, and people would call up my high school classmates and they'd say, you know, what was Mark Cuban like? They're like, who? 
Yeah, I think I saw his name on the roster, you know, but I, I didn't know him. Yeah, but you certainly, you know, I have friends who, who made a fortune like you did in technology. And they always talk about how they were computer nerds growing up and sat home every day and stuff. But that wasn't you at all. No, no, no. I was kind of before all the computer nerd stuff hit. You know, um, I'm old. And, and so <laughs> I, I was kind of a high school. I was kind of a history nerd with my friends. I was, you know, I had I had a lot of close friends and we, we were the group of nerds that would play poker every Friday night or there was a little horse track um, not far from us and we'd go and bet $2 for the whole night, you know, and so that was us. So when you guys played poker, were you a winner? Were you consistently a winner? I would say consistently, but I did pretty well. Yeah, I, yeah. I held my own. For those nickel hands, I knew how to get for the big bucks. <laughs> I remember we used to play a game when we were in high school called Black Mariah, where you yes. had to have the high ace and the high hand or the pot stayed. You know, we get to, tonight, actually, every week, my high school buddies and I do a Zoom together like this. And we talk about those stupid poker games and try to remember the games. Anaconda, you know, yes. um, Elevator and all these games, you know, Engine and all these games we made up. It was so silly. And, and the so pot would stay. So at a nickel or a quarter a hand, suddenly there'd be like a few hundred dollars <laughs> in that pot. And then somebody would win it with like a queen of spades or something. And you'd <laughs> Jake, there was never a time in the history of the time we played poker where there was a few hundred dollars in the pot. For us, if there was like $11, we were freaking out. And if we were the loser of it, it was like, how are we going to tell our parents? And we would do these things where like, you know, we'd have quarters and nickels and dimes. And if we had a bunch of quarters, we'd like to see if we can get them up to our chin to stack them up. It was just, it was so much fun. <laughs> you know, you and I share something else. When I was really young, I was a kid. I created a company when I was nine called Aardvark Enterprises. Oh, wow. And I went to the summer camp and we charged counselors for shoulder massages and cans of Coke. <laughs> which I paid at the time, I think a quarter for it's all the 50 cents. And I read this, but you started, you know, doing something that I've never heard a young kid do before. You started when you were 12 selling garbage bags. Yeah. Um, that was just happenstance. So, um, I was always a basketball junkie. My dad would have his buddies over to play poker. And when it was one night, it was hit, um, poker night at our house. And so like I always did, I'd walk in there to grab a donut and, um, I was like, Dad, can I get a new pair of basketball shoes? And like you always would, he'd go like, those shoes on your feet, they look like they work pretty well. When you have a job, you can buy whatever you want. Until then, you get to keep those shoes. I'm like, Dad, I'm 12. How am I going to get a job? And one of his buddies, who was probably blitzed out of his mind, popped up and said, hey, I've got all these boxes of garbage bags. Why don't you sell them? And that's what I did. I literally went door to door. Wow. Hi, my name is Mark. I'm your neighbor. Do you use garbage bags? You know, and who's going to say no to a little 12 year old right. version of that? So you, so you sold uh, you help, you sold the heck of a lot of garbage bags. And I sold shoes. a lot of garbage bag and made some money. Wow. So then you wind up. I'm just having fun doing this with you, buddy. So then you wind up at University of Pittsburgh, which is where yeah. my brother went. Oh, my wow. brother's a pit guy. So uh -huh. I used to go up there and visit him all the time. I'm a big Eaton Park consultant years ago. I worked with Eaton Park up there. Uh, you know what? My dad and I and, and my brothers and my family would drive up there on Fridays after he was done with work. And we'd go and get some big boys. And I love the like the, the strawberry pie with all the whipped cream on oh, it. Oh, yeah. Mean, amazing. Remember the smiley face cookies too? Yes, absolutely. Those happy face cookies that they had. So so then when you developed an interest in psychology, which I find fascinating. Yeah, but you know, I don't know that so much it was a pure interest in psychology, but so when I was um, a sophomore, no, junior in high school, junior, um, I just said, you know what? I want to challenge myself. And so I was... Um, I signed up, I saved up a little money and signed up for these night classes at the University of Pittsburgh. And one of them was a class in psychology. 
And I thought, okay, well, if I can pass this class, then maybe I can challenge myself to do other stuff. And so I, I did pretty well. And um, that, that got me interested. I learned obviously a lot about people. I learned a lot of, you know, just being there. And it wasn't just college students. It was people who were older, you know, just taking night classes. And so really it was an eye opener for me. And I, and I learned a lot and that really gave me confidence. I ended up dropping out my senior year and going to Pitt for what would have been my senior year of high school, transferring my credits back and graduating from high school with my college credits. Wow. So, you know, it's interesting. So when I'm thinking about, you know, what's made you so successful, I think I just heard those words. You challenge yourself. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So, I, I love it. So that's the essence of your success is you wake up a day. What do I challenge myself with now? Yeah. And mostly it's, you know, particularly with technology, it's mostly, you know, what can I learn today to keep up or get ahead? And, you know, for whatever reason, I learned that skill at Indiana where I was so competitive. I, I always wanted to try to, you know, show that I could be ahead of everybody else. And, you know, when I got to Indiana, quick story, um, back then we registered for classes with these little punch cards. And I went to register and right by where I was getting ready to take a class, there was a sign up for graduate MBA, um, graduate level statistics, K501. And I'm thinking, you know, if I really want to challenge myself and find out if I'm smart or not, mm -hmm. I should register for that class and see if, I, if they'll let me in. And so I registered and they just presumed that I was in the MBA program. The guy, a guy named Wayne Winston, who I would end up hiring as our analytics guy for the Mavericks, you know, what, 20 years later, mm -hmm. um, they let me in and I got an A in the class. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, I just got an A in an MBA class. So and that, by that point, they thought I was in the MBA program. So I started taking MBA finance the first entrepreneurship class that they had there and all these things. And by the time I was halfway through my sophomore year, I had, you know, my first year, my MBA done. And then all of a sudden they found out what I had done. One day I'm walking on campus and uh, um, the Dean of the business school walks up and he goes, Cuban, I don't know what you did, but you're immediately out of the MBA program and back to undergrad. But, you know, to your point, I just challenged myself. And once I started getting those little pieces of confidence, you know, I knew I, I, I was unstoppable. So, so when you were a kid, you loved basketball. Yeah. You, you go to college, you go, did you always have this vision of being in the basketball business? Not necessarily oh, as a no. team owner. But no. Not, so no. that was never on your radar screen at all. Never. Literally the first time that crossed my mind was opening night of the 99-2000 season. It had never, ever crossed my mind. I was there with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And I'm looking around, you know, it's the first game of the season. And I'm like, it's not even a full arena. And I just sold broadcast.com. I'm like, you know, I could do so much better than this. And then it dawned on me, oh my goodness, maybe I could buy this thing. Cause the guy who owns it doesn't really like basketball anyways. And so I, I talked to a, a former NBA all-star um, for the Mavs, Mark McGuire. He connected me and, you know, weeks later I owned the team. Wow. And it was a team that had no energy. And then when you came in, and of course that, that's a story unto itself. <laughs> I mean, your energy ignited the whole darn arena. Well, we had some really good players and, and I think I just, I, I went in there and I said, look, we're going to win and you're either going to be here for the ride and do everything possible, or I'll trade you to find somebody who will. And just turned out, we just started turning it on and um, started playing better and better and better. And we didn't make the playoffs my first year. It wasn't a full season, but we didn't make the playoffs. But after that, we did for the next 15 years. And, and had some record seasons too. Yeah. A number of record seasons. I want to back up a little bit because I got a little bit ahead of myself. So when you actually started your software company, Micro Solutions, you know, it took you, I'm guessing, how many years before you sold it? Almost eight years, right? In yeah, almost business. seven, eight years, yeah. 
So I sit here as an entrepreneur, and a lot of entrepreneurs are listening to us, Mark. And, you know, you think about a company that you sold for almost $6 million back then, which is a lot of money, and that you built it over eight or nine years. Well, to get $6 million for that company, you had to be earning a significant amount of dollars every year. Was that company successful because of its technology, because of a sales effort? Because I know you're always selling. That's one of always. your mantras. So yeah. Was that company successful because of sales effort, technology effort, team? What That's a great it? question, John. Uh, all the above. All the above, right? Because, you know, I was a salesperson at heart. And when I started it, I was still learning the technology. So at the beginning, uh, we were more of a sales organization where we, we just so few people knew personal computers back then when I got started that the real value add was me helping people set things up and learning as so I So you went. were almost a reseller of software setting That's up exactly. office systems. Yeah, uh, we were a reseller and integrator, right, where we sold hardware and software. And at the beginning, you know, because I had a business background, I would do accounting software and whatever and install those on, on people's computers in their office to replace uh, um, manual systems. And then as I became more efficient at technology, we started connecting PCs together into local area networks and then wide area networks. And then, you know, I just put in the effort, hired a lot of smart, smart people. And then we got really good at the technology. Wow. So in the beginning, you were selling what everybody else was selling. You were reselling software that they could get somebody else, some, somebody else, services that they could buy from somebody else. So were you the salesman then? Were you the guy up front? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was doing all the sales so, every minute of every day. So just like the garbage bags, you were knocking on the doors. And oh, yeah. I mean, sales. up until recently, if I wasn't the top salesperson, I, I was embarrassed. I mean, literally, I, I made a point to make sure that I was outselling everybody, you know, because sales cures all right. No, no absolutely. company is going to exist. And, you know, the beauty of micro solutions that I'm really proud of is we never had a losing month. Not one single month of our existence do we ever lose money. Um, and I, I was proud of that. And the other thing I was proud of, of the 80-some employees we had, we only ever had one person leave and she came back. And so it really, I mean, was a great place to work. When we sold the company, I took a million of the $6 million and we distributed because the, the um, employees had equity in the company. So we distributed money to them as well. And so it was, yeah, it was, it was a fun organization and, and we really accomplished a lot. Okay, so now you sell that company, you're off and running, but you're a, you're a Indiana basketball fan, and you're a little bummed because now you can't hear the Indiana basketball games. So it's interesting. I, I don't know if you know this, but I get credit for creating NFL Sunday Ticket. I heard that. I read that. And, and, and this was in the mid '90s, about the same time you were working on, on the ba on the basketball product. Right. And what I did is I was hired by a company called Comsat to create. What we, to create what was called an out-of-market sports programming package. Yep. It was a term we used back then. Yep. So you could buy, in essence, an Indiana signal in Dallas. Was that on C-Band? Was it on C-Band? It was on C-Band then. And it was, it was delivered through a company called Sportsnet. It was one of the companies yep. that did it. But you could, in essence, the original plan was that you could buy a Redskin signal in Dallas. So you get the local coaches showing up. And then as we were putting a product together, compression was created. Yep. So whammo, now we could receive multiple signals on transponders and Sunday ticket was invented. So while we're doing this, you're creating your own. Yep. Uh, uh, and we were trying to use story. those C-bands, right? So in the mid nineties, when you guys were broadcasting stuff on C-band and we couldn't stream video yet, we could stream audio. We had six, seven, eight um, 
huge satellite dishes on our roof. And that's exactly what we would pull. We would pull from all the, all the feeds that you guys had. And, you know, there, there was a lot of feeds in the wild that you could grab and pull yep. down then. And there was audio, you know, there was um, radio streams in some cases for the syndicated programs that we could pull down. And we would grab, once we got up and running and going, we would grab all those and code them and stream them on the net. And that was really smart because back then, first of all, you had to have eight analog dishes. So if you were a sports bar, you had to have almost a half acre. Yep. <laughs> this, yeah, this is, remember that? And, and then you almost had to have, a, there was a subscription service, I remember, yeah. online, just to tell me what game was where because it was such a challenge to find. Right, yeah, because you had to tune it <laughs> in, right? And so you had to know which, um, um, which satellite dish it was and which transponder, right? And, and literally so, tuning it. <laughs> I, I had a Toshiba, I had a Toshiba tuner, I'll never forget, right? And we would have to try to down in and get it. If the wind blew too much, it would throw it out of whack. Yeah. So you took all of that and put it into an organized fashion and right. delivered it cohesively to the end user. Yeah, so what right. we did, we, we called a company, called it AudioNet, and really it was the first streaming company on the internet. And we would take content from wherever we could get it. You know, back, the, back then the digital copyright laws were different. We right. would just buy buy CDs and encode them and, and call it the jukebox and put it on audionet.com. We would, you know, work deals with radio stations and we would work, we would create our own internet radio stations where we just program them themselves and, and just paid ASCAP BMI. And we would have a thousand plus internet radio stations. We would take um um what you would call it, the police feeds, right? And and just put those on there. Anything, all content we could find. And back then you got the content for free. Oh yeah. Oh, they were yeah. just happy to give it to you. Not anymore. Well, they, yeah, they, exactly. <laughs> they just wanted more listeners and you know, it's just another way to get, get, get it out there and, and build an audience. And you know, and bandwidth was so expensive back then, you know, it was hard for them to do it themselves. Right. Right. You know, it's interesting. We used to get, when I used to run nightclubs in the early days, I had a place called that I ran called pulsations in Philadelphia. We used to get roadrunner cartoons. Uh, and they were called cartoon carousels. And we would play them in the club as ambient video back yep. then. And there was none. None of that product existed. Then the fun stuff we used to get, Mark, was factories at fast speed. Twinkies going by and cars going by. <laughs> we, any content we could get at all. Any public domain there. stuff that you could grab, you would grab and put it on there. Yeah, we But I wasn't as smart as you. I didn't monetize it like you did, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing a lot of people bought drinks while they were watching Twinkies. <laughs> So I love the story. You slept on the floor when you first moved to Dallas. That was sort of a fun story. So you really moved to Dallas literally with nothing. Nothing. I had a 1977 Fiat X19 with a hole in the floorboard. I had to pop in a quart of oil every 60 miles or so. I got to Dallas and I mean, I had five, one friend who had four other buddies from high school and they were like, you know, Hey, we don't have a bed for you, but if you want to crash on the floor, go for it. And I didn't leave for a long time. It was miserable, but it was fun. Yeah, I guess you know, I wouldn't give up those days either. Oh, uh, those days that I had when I was younger like that. How many companies have you invested in in Shark Tank? You know? Um, it's over 100. I don't know the exact number. A hundred. Okay. And do you get P&Ls and operating statements from each of them? Do you, do you yeah. stay involved with each of them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the way I work is um, I have a great team for, with me, first of all. And so sure. they do a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff. But every depending, you know, depending on where they are in their life cycle, um, if it's a brand new investment, I'll get um, an email report every week or every other week with bad news first. I always tell them I expect good news. That's why I invested in you, but I'm here to help with the bad news. So if there's anything wrong, that's what I want to hear about. And so I'll dive right in and, and you know, you know how it works. I don't want 
somebody to say, well, no, Mark Cuban wasn't involved. It did help them. I mean, I'm, I'm okay at this. I'm not bad at this. I want to help them and I want that business to grow. So yeah, I'm there all the time. People can email, call me, whatever they need to do. It's funny. I'm, I've been, I'm probably doing the show next year. We're, we're discussing it now. Oh so yeah, that'd be great. I'd have a lot of fun sitting with you. We could fight oh, over yeah. a deal or two. That would be fun. Oh, huh? I, I would just brutalize you, John. Brutalize <laughs> I bet you would. So, you know, I know that you've dabbled in politics and this isn't a political show and I don't want to go there today, but you know, I know that you, you are pretty fiscally responsible, right? Because of the sports world that you're in, you're in businesses that have very tight cash flow sometimes are hugely impacted by tax policies, right? By capital policies. Sure. And so, so I know that when you look at, at business, uh, uh, that you have a pretty conservative fiscal policy, I would think generally, is, is that a pretty fair statement? Well, it just depends, right? So look, you know, do never in my entire career have I really worried about tax policy because I, n I never started a business based off of what the taxes are, right? You know what it's like when sure. you started that club, you didn't think about the taxes, right? When you worked, you know, to start up Sunday Ticket, you know, you weren't thinking about the taxes first. Now, once you get bigger and you look at the cash flow for certain companies, then obviously you pay attention because you want to maximize your cash flow. Um, but I, I, I've never been, I've always wanted smart taxes as opposed, as opposed to the lowest possible taxes. Yeah, I think that that's well said. Uh, uh, and smart taxes is in essence, dip where the money is, don't dip where the money isn't. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So, so when you take a look at, at, at uh, uh, politics now, and I know there's moments where you've sort of almost said that you're going to get in. And then I know there's moments where you've said, no way, I'm, I'm not doing this. <laughs> and you sort of dabble. Are yeah. you still open to a political career? Is that something you think about? As a career, no. I mean, you know, there, there's so much car conflict and partisanship that, you know, it, it certainly crossed my mind to run for president, but my family voted it down and, and that ended that, you know, point point blank. Um, you know, I just, I just, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent. There's certain things that people might think I'm on the liberal side. And there's a lot of things that purely on a financial basis that people think I'm conservative. I'm a, I'm a hardcore capitalist, but I try to also be a realist particularly the way things are now. You know how things are, you know, you've got to, context always matters, right? The way you're running a business today is not the way you ran a business six months ago. The way you deal with problems today from a government perspective is not the way you dealt with them six months ago. So I, I'm really not somebody who's dogmatic. So I, I try to be pra pragmatic and I think that's missing in politics today. Yeah, you know, I think you and I have very similar political positions in that regard. You know, I'm a capitalist first. I believe in sound, smart tax policy, but I'm very socially liberal, as I knew you know you are. And I'm very big on people having the right to be who they want to be. Exactly right. And what they want to be. Yep, that's and, no that's no place for government there. No, that is no place for government there. But you know what's interesting? When I look at you, Mark, and I look at when you took over the Mavericks as an example, you were so accessible to the fans. You were out there in the arena, right? You were engaged and accessible. Then when I think about your relationship with the players, and look, I shot some hoops with you in Puerto Rico. Yeah, so right? I and I made I, I still have that video because someone just threw me the ball and bam, I switched it. I was like, it's okay, i now. <laughs> <laughs> it was a But my point is you play with the team. You're involved with them. You're very engaging as a person. And when I think of it, I won't say the name of it, but years ago, I was a consultant to the world's largest brewery. You can put any name on it. You yeah. want. And I'd go to their corporate offices in a Midwestern city and the elevator had a secret code in it that went to the top floor so they wouldn't see any employees from the garage. 
And this was the way they ran these companies. They avoided employees, didn't want to see them, locked them out of bell. You're the exact opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I first bought the Mavs, um, everybody said, well, where do you want your office to be? And I, there was a sales bullpen that they had set up where all the salespeople had their phones and their, you know, their call list and everything. I put my desk right in the middle, right smack dab in the middle of that. I put a, a, a stack of printouts with former um, customers. I put a phone there. I put a PC there and I said, I'm going to be here selling because I want them to see, I know how to sell this product. You know, we have $10 tickets. It's cheaper than going to McDonald's. It's cheaper even then than going to a movie. And I want to show people this is the best place that you can ever have fun. And if I can't sell it, how can I expect them to sell it? So I just put myself right smack dab in the middle. And, you know, I've tried to be that way ever since. You are actually a sales manager almost first and foremost in a way, aren't you, Mark? Well, I wouldn't call me a manager. I try to say I try to lead by example. I'm actually a lousy manager. <laughs> and I've learned that the hard way. You know, um, I'm, I'm not good at hiring people. But once you give me a task or, or when there's a goal, or when I have a vision for an organization, then I'm pretty good at getting people to buy in and, and allowing them to benefit from it as much as I do. Now, you know, I say this, something that you said a little earlier. I say it a little differently. I always, when I give my speeches and management program, I always say, who has expense problems? And, you know, a thousand people in the room raise their hands. I do, I do. Rent is too high. Marketing's too high. Promo cost is too high. Every, and then I say, well, what if you raise revenues by 20%? Oh. Hello. So, so revenue cures everything. Sales cures all. everything. There's so, never been a business ever in the history of businesses to succeed without sales. I think that's such a deep philosophy that you and I share. And I say to businesses all the time, you have no expense problems. You only have revenue problems. That's exactly. Go right. solve the revenue problems. And, you know, for clubs and, you know, and, and promotions and stuff, that's actually, it's the, you know, People don't really sell, and that's exactly where they should be. They wait for people to walk in, right? And that's the hardest thing to do. you got to get out there and promote and market every single day. And the good thing about most businesses, everybody's a potential customer. And I think the other, the other threshold that people need to get by, they always think that selling is convincing. Selling isn't convincing. It's helping. You know, it's making somebody's life easier. And if you're going to make somebody's solutions. Life, yeah, exactly right. You, you know, you need to relax. It's been a long day at work. This vodka tonic is a solution. <laughs> oh, yeah. And even how does this make you feel? You know, don't you think that that would... So I, I agree with you. You know, I always say this, and you'll appreciate this. I think you're going to love this, Mark. And this was my first book. You're not in the basketball business. You're in a reaction business. You achieve it through basketball. We're in the, ex we're in the experience business. And, and so... You I achieve got it through basketball. Basketball is not the product. The nope. reaction to the product is what the product is. You know, it's a great, great, great point, John, because when I first got there, I started asking, you know, I spent a little time there and then I realized, wait, we don't sell basketball. We sell experiences. When you think about the last game you went to, you don't remember the score. You don't remember the jump shots. You don't remember the touchdowns or home runs, depending on the sport. You remember who you were with. You know, you remember how you felt. You remember screaming and yelling with your brother, your mother, your sister, your uncle, your aunt, your ex-girlfriend, your buddy who was drunk and puked on himself. You know, the girl or the guy that you, you know, you talked to that you ended up dating. Those are the things that we remember. And that's what I had to convince people. And at the NBA, they thought I was crazy because they were all about selling basketball. And I'm like, no, that's idiotic. We do not sell basketball. 
We sell so, experiences. So you put more time in a production capability in games, audiovisual presentations, oh, yeah. interactivity. You really elevated the play to create this wonderful experience. You and I share that so much. See, I always say the cook in the kitchen isn't making an entree. He's making a reaction. He's achieving it through the entree. That's exactly right. That exactly. the plate isn't the product, the reaction is. Yeah, so, you know, it's, we spend more money on game production than probably the rest of the NBA combined. You know, we, when we're always trying to be creative. We're always trying to come up with new ways to do it. Sometimes it's the simplest thing. Like I was at an all-star game somewhere and they put mics on the rims. And I'm like, wow, what a great idea. Because I'm watching the game and I'm hearing clank or swish. And I'm like, so I just put mics on the rims, which also allowed us to pick up the voices of players around the basket. And all of a wow. sudden people are like, wow, you know, how cool is that? And, you know, then everybody picked it up. And so there's just, you know, there's just little things. Sometimes it's the smallest things that, that just can have just a disproportional impact that makes people remember. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, you, you know, you kept all your Maverick employees on. I know you really made the news. You were a leader in doing that. And, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is sports ownership of teams isn't always a great cash flow business. It's more no. of an asset business. So, no. so you lose a season like this. I mean, cash flow is gone. It's gone. And yeah. I mean, zero revenue. I mean, the, my first 12, no, first 15 years, I lost money. You know, um, no, I take that back. One out of, I made money one out of those first 15 years. And it's, you know, and now there's, there's a lot of team owners. Look, no one's going to feel sorry for us. And I don't want any sympathy for me but um, I'll survive. But there's a lot of team owners that, you know, are in the service or entertainment business in not just our sport, but a lot of sports that, that are struggling. And, and you're right. It's, it's not necessarily a cash flow business. It's an asset business. Yeah. I know you're in the theater industry too. You have some. No, I sold them. I sold them. Oh yeah. Good timing. Yeah. No kidding. I, we <laughs> sold them like a year and a little bit ago. Jesus. So, good timing. No kidding. Yeah. Right. I use the term location-based entertainment, like LBE. Yep. And, you know, that's everything from a bowling center to a basketball game. And, you know, we've lost that industry now. Broadway is talking about opening in 21 now, for Christ's sakes. It's crazy. So, so we've lost all these industries. What do you see? And I know you've been asked this question a lot, but what do you see for basketball now? Do you see us opening at 50% capacity? No, I think we start with see? no fans. I think we start with no fans because um, TV is a big part of our, our business, right? Well, yeah. It's a big, important part of our finances. And so, you know, people are dying for sports right now. Yep. You know, if we can do it safely and get everybody back in the court, the ratings are going to be huge. The advertisers don't have any place else to put their money. So they'll be more than happy to spend money with us. And so there's a lot of opportunity, but, you know, you know, safety first. But I think, you know, as every day goes by, we become a little bit smarter about the virus. And I think we're, we're going to be able to figure it out. I think so, too. It's starting to feel like we almost got to figure it out. Yeah. Vegas opens tomorrow. I know. And I when know. you think about the logistics of a card game being safe now, so, so you know, and a slot machine being safe now. So yeah. now when the slot machine pays you off and you get the chit, it shuts down. And I'm it can't be it. used again until it's cleaned and the operator resets it. So all these little procedures. Do you think that there'll be a digital element to the uh, fanless games? Will there be an audience uh, 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 sound? Will oh, yeah, we'll do all kinds of fun stuff. The arena? Yeah, we've got all kinds of, we're just working on it today, actually, where um, we'll be able to have fans press buttons and talk into, you know, their phone and have that all come out together and have the cheering and everything, you know, and the other team will be competing on their end and we'll see who does it better. And so, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to um, gamify it and have some fun with it. So the, the loss for the fans in the arena could be the fan, the gain for the fans who are watching it. Yeah, no, no question. We'll, we'll have some fun with it. You know, and, and that's one of the challenges that we have in, in general. You know, 
as things become more digital and 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 it, you you know you're in the TV business, right? As as streaming becomes such a bigger component, particularly for younger um, viewers, you know we have to adapt. We have to come up with new ways because you know it's not that TV's dead. There's still you know 90 million homes with televisions that watch TV, but you know there's just a big big um, challenge to retain that audience and the momentum is obviously going towards streaming and we've got to find ways to do a better job of reaching younger audiences with with our streams you know it's interesting uh, some friends of mine in the nhl i'm a big hockey fan and, and i know you tried to buy the penguins once yeah, yeah. at some point but uh, in nhl it looks like they might be the first league back possibly and it's yeah i know they're trying to or you know do the 2014 thing so we'll see yeah. i mean you know it's you know they, they've got different considerations because we can set up a basketball court anywhere they've got a really focus on how they set up ice and getting their guys ready. Do you think that the uh, a reinvented basketball season will be at, at common locations or you think it'll still be at, at home courts around the country? No, I think it's going to be um, the Hotel California setup where you check into one location and you don't leave until you're eliminated from the playoffs. Right, right. And then everybody's kept in quarantine and such. Yep. You know, Mark, to finish this up, uh, I was talking to a bunch of college kids the other day who've had a terrible graduation, obviously, yep. and high school kids. And, and I was telling them that at times like this, Great marketers bubble to the top. Great promoters bubble to the top. Great operators bubble to the top. And this isn't the time to be paralyzed. No. This is the time to, to use your term, Mark, to challenge ourselves. Absolutely. And how do I be a better marketer, a better promoter, a better operator, a better salesperson? Yep. How do I elevate myself? Yeah, you're, you are so right. I mean, look, we're going to look back in 20 years to the pandemic of 2020, and we'll find 25, 30, 50 world-class, world-changing companies that were created. There are, there's people out there right now that have a vision for how things will be better on the other side of this, how we, you know, a new, a new company, a, a new charity, a new just way of, of doing things, and they're going to crush it, right? And the key is those people just going for it because you know what, it, what it's like. I mean, lots of people have ideas. Lots of people get excited but so few take that first step. And even after they've taken that first step to start the business, so even fewer follow through. But you are so right. If you're able to take those first steps and go for it, you know, all the big companies are trying to just retain their legacy businesses. Same with the medium-sized company and the small companies. You know, they, they were built for pre-pandemic times. When you start from scratch, you get to build for the way things are today, you know, and the way things are evolving for the future. So you have a huge advantage. I mean, clubs and restaurants, I mean, there's never going to be a better time to try to redesign what a club or restaurant looks like. I agree. It's, it's an opportunity for many people. Okay, last sort of personal question, then I'll let you go, buddy. So you grew up in a middle-class, blue-gray-collar environment. We talked about that. You go to Dallas, you get involved in a software company, you sell it for millions of dollars. Was there a moment when you picked up the phone and called your dad and said, Dad, I'm a millionaire? Oh Dad, yeah, I made it. Was yeah, actually, it wasn't so much when I sold it. It was just when I first started getting going, right? And I remember sitting with a friend of mine at a bar, having a drink, celebrating the fact that I had $100,000 in the bank. <laughs> and to me growing up, that was just inconceivable. Right. And, um, and I called my dad and told him, you know, because I just wanted to tell him, and he started crying, just bawling his eyes out. Wow. And... Um, yeah, it's that, just, it was a special moment. I was going to say, probably one of the greatest moments in your life was making Yeah, without that, question, without question. Yeah. 
You know, I want everybody to know that you are a really good guy, Mark. I appreciate it, John. You, you care about people. You're compassionate. You're direct. You're vocal. You put your beliefs on the table. You know, in a world today, we're so scared to have conflict, you know, to yeah. argue with each people, share ideas with each other. But if we don't share ideas and have conflict, we don't grow as a society. And I have huge respect for the things that you say and you putting your beliefs out there and being thank so you. honest about thank the way you. you feel with all of us. Thank you, Mark. No, thank you, John. I appreciate it. I appreciate the questions and um, keep on doing what you're doing. You're going out there and helping people and helping entrepreneurs. And that's a beautiful thing. So you, buddy. I hope to see you on TV soon. Same, same. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, Mark. Be safe. Uh, take care. Don't shut down this podcast. John Taffer will be right back. Talking to Mark uh, leaves me with two expressions, two thoughts, I should say. One, challenge yourself. Challenge yourself. Think about this. The guy wound up with a box of garbage bags, went out and sold garbage bags. When I had Damon John on this show, he couldn't afford to buy a hat, so he made it himself in his living room. Before you knew it, he sold millions of them. We got to challenge ourselves. Now, right now, during this pandemic and during this moment in time, with all the unrest that is going on, you have to challenge yourself. You have to challenge yourself to get along with each other. We have to challenge ourselves to send a message that's succinct so we can change the systems that are hurting our society. We have to challenge ourselves to learn more, challenge ourselves to try more. At this time, more than ever before in my lifetime, our society is challenged and we are challenged. Now, let's seize that challenge. So. Mark always challenged himself and he wound up a billionaire because the challenges got bigger and bigger. Mark also understood that sales, revenues, effort, driving the top line solves everything underneath it. Those are two powerful lessons. So I ask you, are you ready to challenge yourself now? Let's challenge ourselves to get out of this together. Let's challenge ourselves to stop uh, uh, divisiveness and start to reach out to each other. Let's challenge ourselves to get past this personally, professionally, and financially. I'll talk to you next week. Subscribe to the John Tapper podcast right now for more episodes every Thursday.